In the aftermath of the social protests inspired by the murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer, a wave of progressive prosecutors were elected across the country dedicated to rolling back the tough-on-crime, lock-em-up policies that have defined criminal justice in this country for decades. None of those prosecutors have proven more controversial than Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon. From his first day in office, Gascon, a former L.A. street cop, issued sweeping directives to put an end to cash bail, the death penalty, life sentences without parole, and the prosecution of anyone younger than 18 as an adult, without exceptions. But today, as violent crime rates in Los Angeles and across California spike, Gascon's reforms have triggered a ferocious pushback, including from his own prosecutors who sued him for his efforts to bypass California's so-called three-strikes-and-you're-out law. Now, Gascon is facing a well-funded recall campaign that has already raised over $3 million. Will Gascon survive the effort to remove him from office? And if he doesn't, what message will that send to progressive prosecutors throughout the country? We'll talk to Gascon and get his take on what he still thinks he's gotten right, as well as some of the admitted mistakes he's made on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. And we are joined by our L.A. Bureau Chief, national political reporter, Andrew Romano, who was with me in in the interview with Gascon. Andrew, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. Before we get to our discussion of uh, George Gascon and progressive prosecutors, I noticed, Victoria, you have a new title and position. You want to tell us about it? Yes. So I have uh, started working at an organization uh, mellifluously known as the States United Democracy Center, but we just abbreviated States United. It just rolls uh, off the tongue. It does. <laughs> Is there an acronym there? I mean, I, it seems a little wordy. <laughs> uh, we're, we're not allowed to say the acronym. Um, okay. <laughs> but um, it was uh, founded in the wake of uh, January 6th by friend of the pod, Norm Eisen, a, mm-hmm. a former White House counsel in the Obama administration, and by the former Republican governor of New Jersey, Christy Todd Whitman, and also with a with someone from the Massachusetts Attorney General's office. So it never did I expect I would be working at an organization with Michael Chertoff on the board of uh, on, on its board, but <laughs> yes, I am, and uh, it's former uh, President Bush's Homeland Security Secretary. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's going to be a wild ride as we go into the 2022 election and onward into 2024. Well, the issue that we're talking about today is kind of right up your alley, or at least it has been, and that is the um, progressive prosecutor movement, uh, the efforts to uh, roll back sort of tough on crime policies that were a hallmark of U.S criminal justice policies for decades, pioneered, by the way, uh, by one Senator Joe Biden back in the early 90s when he pushed through a very tough anti-crime bill. And now there's 
you know, we are seeing a big pushback against these prosecutors and no one has gotten more flack and is perhaps more in peril right now than George Cascone, the L.A. D.A. I gather, Victoria, you think he's getting a bum rap? I think there's a a distinct chance that he is for at least two reasons. The first is I think that the the data seems to indicate that the percentage or the level of prosecutions that his office has brought for violent crimes is on par with the prosecution rates that were brought by previous prosecutors in L.A. County. I think the the second reason he is probably getting a bum rap is because the truth is prosecutors, DAs, and their decisions have a minimal impact on crime rates. What's driving our current crime rates is not how many people George Gascone is prosecuting or how high a sentence he's imposing on them. What's driving our crime rates is much bigger and beyond anything that he could possibly control. There's a lot of anxiety out there right now, and it's all being focused on one guy. Which is not to say, by the way, that I don't think he may have made mistakes or that, you know, he's a perfect prosecutor, as the case might be. It's just more that he's the the kind of the focal point or the the point of fixation that a lot of people's anxiety is is about crime is is focusing on. All of that is true. The problem is, as you're alluding to at the end there, is he's facing a uh, a really difficult political problem, which is. I mean, you know, just adding to the data, you know, a couple of things. One is that in other districts uh, where the elected prosecutors have a different philosophy, more of a tough on crime philosophy, the crime rates and the murder rates are going up, uh, it seems to me, just as much. But those guys aren't getting, and women, um, are not getting uh, nearly as much flack because the problem is, is that when crime goes up, Politically, it's an issue that it's, you know, it's, it's reductionist. It, it's, a, it's a bumper sticker issue, you know, and you got to be tough on crime. You can't, and, and there's almost a kind of an, you know, there's such an emotional reaction to crime because people are afraid, uh, understandably so, that it, it just becomes um, politicized very, very quickly. And so what's going to be fascinating to me, and I imagine he'll talk about this um, in the interview, is how he is navigating the politics of this and how he deals with the fact that, uh, you know, that, that all the responses are, are nuanced and about, you know, kind of analyzing data as opposed to, you know, the really tough slogans that you can make if you're on the other side. That's his challenge. Yeah, no, exactly. The, I mean, the other thing we have to remember here, and this is something I can never forget because I cover politics from California, is that we have this recall process in place. We saw Governor Gavin Newsom face a recall effort as well, and that applies to all levels of office, and it's become more and more weaponized politically, and that's something that Gascon has to deal with, too. He literally came into office, and a recall effort was launched instantaneously. There was another recall effort in 2021 that fell short. This one now, because of the political factors that Dan was discussing, the rising violent crime rates, which apply in Los Angeles, city, county, but also statewide and really in, in you know, most parts of the country are giving fuel to the second recall effort. Uh, they're raising more money. I think they actually hit $4 million today. There was a story about that. They've gotten more signatures already than they got in 2021. So this is going to be a very real issue for him, especially when the messaging from the recall 
effort. There was a quote in the LA Times today from a spokesman for the recall effort. He said it would be it would require a complete suspension of reality to suggest George Gascon has not played a major role in the rapid deterioration of quality of life and public public safety in Los Angeles. When you don't hold criminals accountable, all hell breaks loose. And that is exactly what you're seeing play out today. That that message is a visceral message that voters can understand. Gascon's message is much more difficult, as Dan said, looking at the data and comparing it to other places. But what it is striking, the depth and the breadth of the opposition to Gascon. I mean, it is coming from, you know, a former L.A. police chief who had endorsed him originally. It's coming from the the sitting sheriff in L.A. County, which works with his office. And most striking to me was his own prosecutors voted overwhelmingly to back the rehaul. I think it was like 98%. When 98 or 99% of your own office is opposed to what you're doing, it seems like a prescription for a dysfunctional prosecutor's office. Yeah, it's been really, really challenging for him because there's another thing specific to LA, um, which is that he can't clear the deck. He can't get fire prosecutors. He can't bring his own people in because of the union here. So he's been essentially faced with mutiny since since taking office um, from a number of, you know, a pretty hardcore number of, of his own prosecutors. It's been a very challenging, to put it mildly, environment for him to try to change completely the way that uh, prosecution works here in L.A. Yeah. And that's that's, by the way, a, a problem that almost all of the kind of the, the so-called progressive prosecutors have faced. Um, probably the one of the earliest to be elected was Larry Krasner in in Philadelphia, and he was recently reelected. And Krasner had exactly that problem. But unlike Gascone, Krasner had the ability to fire a large number of his internal people and did in uh, what was kind of widely regarded as a kind of a, a bloodbath amongst the Philadelphia prosecutors right after he took office. There's, if anyone's interested, a great documentary about his first year in office there. And no one should be surprised, by the way, that people who like our prosecutors kind of have, have come up in that tough on crime sort of environment or, and are angry when a prosecutor who kind of takes a, a diametrically opposite position to them comes in to office. It's hardly so, surprising. You know, what's interesting to me, um, and we'll see how this plays out, is how Gascon is dealing with this beyond making the, the arguments. I mean, it sounds to me like he may be moderating some of his positions, change, you know, tweaking the policies. I don't know if, if it'll be enough, but it does kind of raise the question, you know, I've always wondered about, you know, electing law enforcement officials because it's just an inherent, it makes it inherently political. But on the other hand, maybe he'll figure this out. Maybe instead of swinging wildly from one extreme to the other, that in this process, you'll get to a place where some of these progressive ideas um, will be vindicated, but not go nearly as far as he's gone. And uh, I know Isakoff is like already kind of rolling his eyes and shaking his head because this sounds <laughs> terribly naive. I get it. But I just wonder if there's a kind of a, a dialectic here that could happen. Maybe not, maybe not in this particular case, but maybe moving forward and maybe we'll get to uh, closer to the right place uh, than, than we've been. Just a question. Just putting it out there. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that, too. I mean, that's why Gascon and this recall effort is so interesting to me, because he came in 
fueled by the social protest movement, uh, Black Lives Matter, George Floyd. And he pushed, I would argue, harder, harder than any other progressive prosecutor in the country. He put these policies in place on day one without exceptions. And that's different than what a lot of other people have done. He also sort of touched the third rail of violent crime. You know, he, he was willing to say that even for murder, we should be considering shorter sentences because pe keeping people in prison for the rest of their life uh, doesn't do any good. So he's walked back just in recent weeks, some of these things. He's allowed for exceptions um, to, you know, his ban on trying juveniles as adults, for example, or seeking life, uh, not see seeking life sentences in murder cases. So he's he is trying to find that balance. And I think that's where this race, this moment could have national significance. Like what, are, what are the boundaries? How far can pro progressive prosecutors go? We should also point out that he's got an interesting personal story. This guy was a street cop who, you know, was arresting folks, you know, as that was his job uh, for years. And you'll hear in the in the conversation, we ask him a bit like what what changed him? What was the epiphany he had? And, you know, he didn't point to one. He, he said it took place gradually. But one thing he did point to which I thought was interesting, was the Rodney King riots in L.A. After, that was 1992, which was, I guess, a version of George Floyd back in that day, a guy who gets beat up by L.A. cops. There's video of it, and it sparks all sorts of um, unrest. But I guess the larger sort of policy issue here is, you know, remember back in the day when Rudy Giuliani was America's mayor and not completely discredited as he is today and was heralded for uh, bringing crime down in New York City. And it was the, you know, no broken windows policy. You know, don't let even small crimes go because you send a message when you prosecute them. And in my, you know, I was out there in LA with you uh, a couple weeks ago, Andrew, or last week for this. And um, one thing that everybody I talked to brought up was homelessness. The, the large numbers of, of, of homeless people that you find throughout Los Angeles today, as you do in lots of cities. But Gascon has, you know, walked away or, you know, stopped prosecutions of people who are homeless. Now, I can see from a social justice point of view that might be admirable. On the other hand, is that letting a situation get out of hand that breeds and leads to more crime? On the other hand, Michael, no one has ever prosecuted their way out of a homelessness problem. I mean, that is just no. Not, I'm just, I'm just so, sort of using that as an example yeah. of the sort of polar, you know, arguments here. That when you don't, when you let a problem like that fester, are you, you know, breeding crime? There's two. There's there's sort of two things going on here that look like they're the same, but aren't. You know, one is you're very right, Mike. The homelessness is everywhere here. Um, it is you, unavoidable. Um, it is disturbing. And, you know, when you do have a district attorney who is, now I'm looking at the numbers here, he prosecutors under Gascon uh, filed charges in just 43% of misdemeanor cases presented by police last year. That is half exactly half of the percentage uh, that where they were filing charges under his predecessor as district attorney. So people do see homelessness 
related misdemeanor crimes not being prosecuted, and they want something to be done. On the other hand, homelessness, actually solving homelessness, has to do with mental health, it has to do with housing affordability, all kinds of things that Gascon has no control over. So it becomes a political problem for him, even though he doesn't have really the policy tools to address it. And he would argue that just arresting people um, is going to cause more problems than it solves. But I'm sure, as you're saying, that the homelessness fuels uh, the sense of insecurity among people. Absolutely. There. And that's how it becomes a political. It's probably the biggest political issue in, in Los Angeles. It's going to be the major issue in the mayor's race to replace Eric Garcetti. And several of the leading candidates for mayor have endorsed the Gascon recall. So the politics here are intense. And look, and the reason this is of interest to all our listeners, regardless of whether they're in L.A. or not, is that this is going to be an issue across the country. Certainly in the midterms, uh, it's clear. The, you know, Republicans and Donald Trump is already talking about it. I mean, right. he's talking about these big Democrat run cities that are, you know, chaotic and violent and full of homeless people. I mean, that's going to be a big part of his message if he runs. You know, a few years ago, there was a kind of an emerging bipartisan consensus on crime. Even the Koch brothers were supporting criminal justice reform. Uh, you know, Donald Trump, for the longest time, actually, uh, with the help, you know, touted his kind of reforms. That little kind of shining moment of bipartisan consensus on how to pr uh, approach criminal justice issues is gone. Maybe your new organization, uh, Victoria, can bring it back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, sure. Well, look, all this is, is to say uh, that um, the fate of George Gascon and uh, progressive prosecutors is something that is a national issue that's going to be of national significance and um, a good reason. We wanted to do the interview. So let's get to it. D.A. Gascon, thanks for uh, having us. My pleasure, Mike. So I want to start out by just asking you about your reaction when you heard the president in his State of the Union speech say the answer isn't to defund the police. It's, and I'm quoting the president exactly here, fund the police, fund the police, fund the police. I understand why the president did what he did, right? We live in a world of you know, very simple messaging. And, uh, you know, whether it's build that wall, lock her up, right? It's effective, right? And as someone that was in policing for 30 years before I became a, a prosecutor, I deeply appreciate good policing. You know, I grew up very poor. I grew up in, in some very rough, very rough areas. And the relationship with policing was mixed, right? On the one hand, we wanted good policing to feel protected. On the other hand, we often felt singled out and treated in ways that people in other neighborhoods would not be treated. And that hasn't changed. And part of the legitimacy of the entire system, not just policing, but prosecutions and you know our entire criminal legal system required that people trust and believe that the system is going to treat them fairly, equitably, that they're going to be respected, that there's going to be proportionality. 
So I think that the problem with the whole concept of defund or fund the police is, I think there are terms that sound sexy depending on where you are. Uh, I think it oversimplifies extremely complicated issues. I've never been one that said defund the police. I do believe that we have to also think about funding education, public health, social services, all those other things. That but, are you're, but you're the DA. You're not in charge of the social services department, right? Well, yeah. And I guess my question would be, Would do you accept, especially in a time of rising violent crime, which we have in many inner cities, including in Los Angeles here, that we do need more police on the streets and more funding for the police? I think that we need better policing. And whether that requires more people in uniform, the same, a different kind of policing, uh, I think that those are all questions that, that are still opened. While it is true that violent crime has increased throughout the country, interestingly enough, in California, we see actually communities where you have really strict district attorneys, actually proportionally, their violent crime has gone up more than in communities like mine. We need to understand that the answers and the solutions that got us in trouble in the 90s, you know, for the last 30 years, are not the solutions that are going to get us to a better place. A lot of the problems that we're having today, many researchers, and certainly a lot of data would point that is sometimes a direct cause, over-incarceration, under-investing or divesting in many communities. And then what happened is we, COVID came in. And it was like the, it, that was a knockout punch. If you had the boxing ring going on and you're on the 14th run and you just needed that, you know, Muhammad Ali to come in and, and, and lay the, the, the knockout punch, that was COVID, right? And all of a certain, all the infirmities of a system that has been barely surviving economically and socially just came to a screeching halt. Arguably, you might be the most progressive of the progressive prosecutors. You've certainly put into place from your very first day in office things that some of the other progressive prosecutors might have resisted doing, not trying any juveniles as adults, for example. Seeing the amount of resistance that you've gotten, whether you want to characterize it as political or not here in Los Angeles, do you feel that that's because the environment has changed, because violent crime has risen, because it's changed the political climate? Do you feel that you didn't anticipate or miscalculate it in some way? No, look, I mean, I think that there is no question that there has been an uptick in violence in this community and throughout the country, right? I mean, the, the numbers are where they are. Interestingly enough, if you take a 10-year look, we're still relatively in a very good place, not to make excuses or to say that we should be comfortable with that. To the contrary, I, I go to bed at night thinking about the stuff I get up in the morning thinking about it. But it is very political, right? And this is an old playbook, right? I mean, this playbook was played in the 70s. As, you know, the LA Times recently talked about Make America Scare Again. It's a playbook that gets repeated, and you have, you know, unscrupulous politicians that, you know, they, they, they run uh, often by polling and polling often, and they, and they basically will tailor their message to what they think is polling right. And then you have, unfortunately, you have a combination of intentional misinformation in the media and then the the impact of social media and how people consume information, right? I mean, I, I, I'll give you a perfect example. I had a, a lady who, you know, 
very smart woman, actually, uh, that lives in Beverly Hills. And she sent me an email saying, you know, basically criticizing the policies and how, you know, crime in, in Beverly Hills has gone up so much. Uh, my person goes over there. She spends time. We she runs the numbers. She's you know she's very articulate. And at the end of the conversation, this very smart lady says, "You know what? You know what the biggest problem that Mr. Gascon has." And so a special advisor said, "No, please." He says, "He doesn't have a good PR PR firm." <laughs> she speaks to the fact that you know we're in this world where it's not necessarily about the facts or it's just how you present things how you package. But, Mr. D.A., the, the resistance just hasn't come only from across the political divide. Your own staff, your own prosecutors have sued you over your directive to basically ignore the three strikes and your outlaw, and they won in court. The judge rebuked you for doing that and saying you were asking prosecutors to take a position that was unethical for them. Yeah, so this is being appealed. It's gone to the Supreme Court. Okay. But it was a split decision. Prosecutors exercise that discretion every day. Even in this office, we never filed every single three-strike case. This group of, of prosecutors that has opposed me, they were opposing me during the elections. They, they spent a lot of money running against me. They were talking about recall the first week that I got uh, elected. I think it's important to contextualize where prosecutors, public defenders, police lay. These are extremely ideological careers. Here comes someone that is talking about transforming and taking the system in a different direction and basically puts into question everything that you believe in and the things that, quite frankly, have been the path to success, more trials more punitive convictions. And all of a sudden you have somebody says, you know, some people need to go to prison. Some people need to go to jail. Cases need to be tried. But we need to be more measured in the way that we intervene. And we need to think about not only the case in front of us, but the impact multiple layers down the road. And we need to follow data. We need to follow science and look at research and what research is telling us. Strictly as a manager, though, how do you run an office when your staff, your prosecutors, are opposed to what you want to do? Well, and you can't, you can't let anyone go. Well, That's it, a big difference here in Los Angeles than in other cities. It's a huge difference. Yeah. Prosecutors, both on the right and the left, they get elected and they, they, you know, they, they may clean the deck or they move. You know, here, you cannot do that. But having said that, I think it's, a, it's more nuanced and more complicated than that because we are achieving the goals, right? And look, the majority of the men and women in this office, just like in any office, there are people that get up in the morning, they want to do the right things. And if you look at the results of the last year in this office, you see the majority of the men and women in this office, not only are they following the directives, but you know many of them have embraced it. You know, unquestionably, there is a, a group that is completely opposed to what I'm doing. They deeply believe in the things that we've done in the past is the path to continue to do it. I'm going to give them the benefit of that. I think they're following the, what they believe to be the right thing. But that's not, that's not necessarily what is happening every day and, and what the work looks like. And, if it, you know, and, and like I said, the outcome speaks for themselves. What outcomes would you point to so far in your tenure yeah. that would, to counter, you know, it, it's not all... 
PR. People are worried about what they see as an increase in, especially in homicides, up 50 to 77 percent from 2019, depending on how you define the city and the county. That's that's something that feels real to people. It's not just something they're seeing on Instagram. They worry about homelessness. They worry about robbery in their neighborhood. What do you say to those people here in Los Angeles to show that your approach is actually working and not just making things worse? If we went to places where you have traditional prosecutors and their crime was going down, I would be the first one to come back to the office and start saying, okay, I got to do something differently, right? But when I see it actually crime in some places like Kern County is going at a higher per capita rate or Sacramento is going up and they have a completely different approach and they're having the same problem, I have to take, I have to sort of stop and say, okay, there is something beyond what a prosecutor does that is not impacting crime. And if locking people up for longer periods of time is not causing crime to go down, and if locking people up for lower periods of time is not causing crime to go down, what do we do? And, and how do we look at this? And, and, and what are the things that I point out to? For instance, the city of LA now, year today, has about, uh, I believe it's 23% reduction in homicides, right? You're saying in 2022, this year, year over year, the beginning the of this period, year yeah, versus but, but 2021. we're beginning to see the trend right going the so other you, direction. you're hopeful that that'll continue. Well, not only am I hopeful, but I also look at a 10-year trend, which we can share with you. The other reality is that increasingly more and more people would tell you that, frankly, the actions of a district attorney in terms of crime going up or down are probably negligible. Where does a district attorney count is in you know, holding people accountable, right? And the issue of accountability, obviously, is one that I take very seriously. And if you look, for instance, at our prosecutions for felonies last year, we actually prosecuted more felonies last year than, than in prior years, percentage-wise, right? You know, we created the community violence reduction, which we piloted in LAPD, and now we're getting ready to move in other places. We put prosecutors, investigators from this office, but we also brought in public health and community and the police and working in areas that are really, really challenging and have been very challenging for decades, right? And beginning to see breakthroughs there. Look, last weekend, there were 50 shooting victims in this country, and I'm, you know, four of them happened in four different cities in Texas, right? One, I believe it was Arkansas, once in Virginia, once in Florida. All of them strong Republican bastions with very hardcore prosecutors. Can you imagine if one of those shootings happened in LA this weekend, CNN will be breathing behind my door. Yeah, I have to ask you about two particular cases that have gotten some attention. One, Hannah Tubbs, 26-year-old transgender woman, pleads guilty in juvenile court to sexually assaulting a child at a Denny's restaurant, then is caught on tape mocking the sentence, talking about how she's going to go free. She's going to be out on probation, uh, making disparaging remarks about the victim and others. You initially tweeted, this is not an acknowledgement we made a, a mistake in the Tubbs case, by directing that she be tried in juvenile court rather than adult court, despite the severity of the crime. After the tapes came out, you tweeted, if we knew about her disregard for the harm she caused, we would have handled this case differently. Your reaction when you first heard those tapes, and do you now acknowledge it was a mistake 
to have that be tried in juvenile court rather than adult court. Yeah. So first of all, I mean, this young person was 17 when she committed the crime. She's now 26. When we initially looked at the case, we were looking at the cases when the case occurred, not, not where she is now, but where she was. You know, I also look at information that is confidential concerning, you know, mental health and medical issues and all that stuff. And, and all that together as a package led me to believe that this case would be better served if it remained in the juvenile jurisdiction. Now, when I became aware of the, the audio tape, which came, uh, by the way, much, much later, you know, past the resolution of this case, I found them to be disgusting. I found them to be, you know, just completely devoid of any remorse or, or understanding of the harm. Retrospectively, had I had a different opportunity, had I had that information, would I have gone in a different direction of the case? And the answer is probably yes. Having said that, you know, whether you're going one direction or the other, where you're a law and order prosecutor, or you're more progressive or in the middle, we live in a world where there's always going to be a bad case. But if cases like that caused you to rethink the more aggressive approach you sort of came in with, where you wanted to try to rule out, correct me if I'm wrong, exceptions because you were pushing for as much reform as possible. Do you feel that after your time in office and encountering instances like this, that you've moderated that somewhat and said, we need to be more cognizant of the fact that there will be these, these cases and build that into the system? I believe that as human beings, we need to continue to evolve. Right. If you were to talk to me 20 years ago, well, maybe 25 years ago, it's a little longer ago, I was pro-death penalty. I believe that you you committed the crime, you pay the price. I, you know, I, I figured, you know, if you do adult crime, you pay adult price, right? That was 25 years ago. You know, I've learned a great deal. I have educated myself a great deal. I've arrived at a different place. When I was elected, you know, I very readily talked about the fact of my own personal evolution, which will continue to be. When I first came into office, I, you know, I came in into a set of circumstances. And by the way, I came in with a fairly strong mandate. You know, I was not elected by a slim margin. You know, it was about 6% in the, in the largest county in the country. By the way, we're larger, I believe, than 32 states, okay? So again, it's important for people to understand the scope of the work. And we have since then, you know, we have put a different team in place. We have, you know, we have different capacity. At the same time that I kept listening to the public, I kept listening to people inside and outside. And we got into where we have as a result of the journey. So this is a natural evolution. And if you and I were to have another podcast a year from now, you may see other other tweaking in other areas. From a philosophical perspective, you've articulated a certain vision of that has been called restorative justice, but there's another sort of philosophy about crime and punishment. And it was articulated by, most recently, uh, William Barr, the former attorney general in his new book. And I want to read you an excerpt from that and get your reaction, because he's arguing that the real purpose of criminal justice is retribution. The core idea behind retribution, this is Barr's 
writing is that when someone commits a crime, a punishment proportionate to the offense is justified and required solely to redress the transgression and restore society's moral order. That punishment is due regardless of any social utility the punishment may otherwise have in controlling crime in the future. The criminal deserves the punishment for no other reason than he committed the crime. Justice is done when the criminal receives his just desserts. I believe in accountability. Okay, and I believe that the criminal legal system is there to provide accountability and to provide for, you know, a space of safety for the community. I don't necessarily think that this is simply punishment without any understanding of where punishment is going to take you is appropriate. The problem with Mr. Barr's assessment of what the system is it's a good 19th century approach to the work when we had no understanding of the impact of trauma, the impact of brain development on the human beings, what works, what doesn't work. We spend millions and millions of dollars in a process that creates more insecurity and it takes funding away from other things like education, housing, and other services. When I reduce not the number of people going to prison often, but the number of years of incarceration last year, by around 18,000 years. And I want to underline, people went to prison. They often went to prison for very long periods of time. They just simply did not go to prison for those exorbitant 50, 180 years, but maybe 10, 15, 20 years. 18,000 years. When you amortize that over the next decade, in terms of the dollars, when you consider in today's dollars about $100,000 per person per year to be housed in a California prison institution, that doesn't account for the cost of prosecution, policing, and all that. Won't we be better off spending, instead of $16 billion in prison, which, by the way, we spent $16 billion this year, won't some of that money be better spent in creating more educational job opportunities, trade opportunities, mental health work, as ASR Surgeon General has just said, we need, we have a time bomb in our hand. We need to increase mental health services in the K through 12 environment. So you tell me what approach is more likely to create greater health and greater safety in our community. You mentioned your journey um, and how you're continuing to evolve to this day. I, I remember you said uh, in your sort of uh, inauguration speech, I think, that you're not the same man you were when you first put on the uniform, and you were a beat cop in, in Los Angeles. What changed you? Was there a moment that you could recall for listeners that sort of led you down this road, going from that that beat cop to what is, you know, arguably one of the most progressive prosecutors in the country? One of the big moments for me was what I call the insurrection today. I used to call it a riot in 1992, right? You know, the post-Rodney King incident and, and sort of the, the, the impact of that, it was, it was shocking to me, right? Because all of a sudden I started to question the work that we were doing and I started to see that we in policing were walking in one universe that was very different than the universe. So the people that we were policing, and I'm talking, I work in the rough place. Okay, I never work in Beverly Hills or I worked uh, 
East LA, South LA. Right. So the places that I worked as a police officer, sergeant, a lieutenant, a captain were very different than, you know, what other people might have experienced. I view used to view myself as sort of the the safekeeper, the one that people can come to for help. And yeah, there was this such a significant portion of our community that actually looked at us and looked at what I stood for as the aggressors, the the the, the occupation army type stuff. Now there were other things too. You know, when you work in this very vulnerable areas, you know, life is short, right? You know, 15 year olds are having kids, 30 year olds are dying, most 14 year olds don't think they're gonna live beyond 30. You have, you know, 35-year-old grandmas, right? So the, the cycle of life is unfortunately and horribly too fast. But you start seeing when you get as old as I am, you start seeing the kids of the generation that you might have arrested before, and they're going down the same way. And you have to stop and question yourself. You know, I'll tell you a man that I admire, and we, we, have, we had a friendship now for two decades, and I look up to him. And I didn't used to agree with him always before, but I always was open enough to talk to him. You know, Greg Boyle, he's a Catholic priest, and a uh, you know people know him as a, the head of you know homeboys industry and all this stuff. But you know, Greg Boyle used to walk the streets in Hollenbeck where I worked, and and he would you know he would be walking at the you know the dark hours of night when the shootings were happening. And by the way, in those days, violence was way higher than it is today. You know, the city of LA was recording a thousand homicides a year. Not the county, the city, okay? And and I, you know, I gained a tremendous amount of respect for the man. Uh, and now, you know, we've, we've become friends for years. And But one of the things that Greg Boyle always used to say, and, and in the darkest moments, he says, you know, every human being has a story. And every human being has a capacity to be better. And I think that when we start looking at, at people as human beings and understand that everyone has a story and understand that everybody has the capacity to be better, some of them may never get there, but we have the capacity to. And you have a system that begins to acknowledge that and hold people accountable, make sure that those that are dangerous are segregated from the rest of us, but those that are no longer dangerous are not. You're going to fight the recall? 100%. 100%. You know, this work is too important. This work is too important for a community that I love, a community that embraced me since I was a young kid, a community where my kids were born, my grandkids were born. This is just too important. Mm-hmm.